We're back. Oh, yes. The Airline Videos Live Plane Jockeys podcast back once again. I am Plane Jockey Kevin alongside Plane Jockey Rudy. Hello, everybody. It's so good to finally be back for the Plane Jockeys podcast. Oh, yes. And absolutely. And today we have the man you've all been waiting to hear from, Mr. Later Tater. Howdy, y'all. All (laughs) All right. (laughs) Don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. From the flight deck, this is the Plane Jockeys Podcast, where we dig into some of the stories and personalities you've seen on airline videos live. Our estimated time en route is, well, however long these guys want to chat. (laughs) Now sit back and relax and enjoy the show. It's a lot more fun than reading the safety card. I promise. Oh, yes, we're back once again. Welcome back to the Airline Videos Live Plane Jockeys podcast. Oh, did you miss us? Don't answer that. Of course you (laughs) did, of course. How are you, Rudy? Doing excellent. I have been looking forward to this podcast recording. Everyone is anxiously waiting to hear from the man himself, Later Tater. Oh, yes, and we are outside the In-N-Out Burger where the planes fly right over our head. All right. The man himself, Mr. Later Tater. That's Hello. Tater. Later <laughs> Tater. How y'all doing? Doing well. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Plane Jockeys oh, Podcast. You, you you showed up today and you were like, <laughs> you really? Surprised. Really? You want to do the podcast <laughs> here? here? Yes. What are you thinking? It's cold. It's windy. <laughs> the planes. It's loud. It's smelly. It's everything, right? Yeah. Well, there you go. You know, <laughs> this is where I mean, it's we, at. This is where it's at. I mean, we're not even giving the whiff of in and out. No, no, I mean, no, no onions. Not no today. No onions. No, we get burned rubber and jet fuel. <laughs> so come on down. Well, we, yeah. we love that just as much, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> All right, uh, Mister Later Tater. So, so people are going to tune in today, and they're going to be like, uh, "I'm sorry. Did did Kevin say Later Tater? What What in the world is that? Can you tell us who you are, Later Tater?" Howdy. Um, <laughs> I am an air traffic controller here at LAX Tower and uh, have been for quite a little while. Yeah. Um, I guess about 20 years off and on. Um, at LAX, I've got 31 years total. Yeah. So I've nearly hit the end of my sentence. Um, <laughs> I might even get off time off for good behavior. Oh. But uh, you never know. But, uh, yeah, I am actually, well, let's start off right quick um, by clarifying who air traffic controllers work for in this country. Because a lot of times I'll tell somebody I'm a controller and either I get one of two responses. Oh, that's such a stressful job. I can never do that. (laughs) Yeah. Or, oh, you're the guy with the orange batons. Oh, (laughs) really? Yeah. Question number two is normally, what airline do you work for? And in the U.S. It's a Delta A321neo flying over us. In the United States, <laughs> nearly all air traffic controllers work for the federal government. Right. Some are military or Department of Defense. The vast majority work for the Federal Aviation Administration. And this seems like a good time to mention that I am here speaking on my own today. I am not an official spokesperson for... The Federal Aviation Administration, or the Department of Transportation, or Los Angeles World Airports, or the National Air Traffic Controllers Association. Right. So everything I say here is my well thought out, well reasoned opinion. Yes. And um, but 
As such, most air traffic controllers in this country, like I said, work for the Federal Aviation Administration. Mm -hmm. There's about, give or take, 15,000 of us. Wow. And uh, some of you may recall that back in 1981, mm -hmm. uh, there was a little fracas where the President Reagan at the time fired most of the controllers mm. because they went out on strike. And oh. one of the minor details of being an air traffic controller in this country is we do not actually have the legal right to strike. Mm. And so they were given like 48 hours notice, you know, come back to work or don't come back at all. And about 11,000 did not come back at all. Wow. wow. It took about a decade to replace those guys. Wow. Mostly guys, a few gals, but it was not as integrated with them as it is now. Right. Hello, Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> Are you feeling better about this location? Um, well, yes, because my back is <laughs> to the wind now. <laughs> but I was in the very last class of strike replacements. Oh, wow. uh, when my class finished a phase, they shut the academy down, and they didn't hire anybody for about four or five years. Wow. And uh, so I have been, for most of my career the very bottom of the totem pole mm. in seniority because you know it's just like the airlines it's it's seniority based you know mm -hmm. what's your uh, we call it service comp date when was your first day with the government and uh, it's only been the last 10 or 12 years where I've been above the bottom third oh, and man. the crazy thing is I'm less than a year from retirement I'm still not number one. Oh my gosh <laughs> there's <laughs> wow. somebody with more seniority than me amazing um, so yeah but the crazy thing is that this is not a job I ever would have guessed I'd end up doing. Mm. I trained to be a pilot oh. after not making it as a veterinarian and wow. after not making it as a musician. Wow. Um, yeah. Really? So, <laughs> but uh, I had the misfortune timing to finish my pilot training in around 1990 when one of the earlier economic downturns where all the airlines were basically going under or laying off people or both. Right. And so I went through a special college program that essentially guaranteed you an interview if you did all the things and kept the GPA and, and, and so forth. Got there, got the interview, and they say, hey, we like you. We're going to put you on this list, and we may call you someday. Wow. And you can't pay a lot of bills that way. So yeah. I went on and was doing some other stuff, uh, still flying a little bit, but was driving a truck, um, running a Boy Scout camp, you know, like you do. And my brother and a friend of ours have been researching, you know, what it actually took at, during those days to become a controller. Hmm. And at that time, the whole process started by taking a civil service exam. It was an exam. You came in and you sat. It was about four hours. Mm -hmm. And there were study guides and all this stuff. They had gone to seminars on how to study for the test, how to take the test, what was going to happen after you took the test, and all this stuff. And test day comes around, and they say, hey, you fly. You should go do this. And then afterwards, we'll go lunch. It's like, okay, what are we having for lunch? <laughs> so four and a half hours later, we had barbecue. Oh, um, good choice. Yes. Um, and I was like, okay, I got barbecue out of the deal. And, th and what state is this in? This was in Texas. Okay. I'm, oh. so yeah, I, oh. I'm from Houston okay. originally. Still have family there. A great place to be from. Um, but uh, we did that. And I mean, it's a neat test. It's, uh, and I don't 
think they even do this anymore. I mean, the way you become a controller now is completely different than how it was then. But at the time, you took this test, and it was broken down into a whole bunch of sections. And each section was timed. Uh -huh. You had however long yeah. to complete that section, and then they called time, and you moved on to the next section. If you didn't finish, too bad. If you finished early, you could not go ahead. So you have 10 minutes to do this section, and there's 100 problems or 100 questions or 10 questions or whatever it was. And it's a bunch, a lot of it was like logic and reasoning type stuff. You know, they give you a sequence of a dozen letters, whatever the next two. Um, oh or they'd show you this weird geometric thing is, okay, before we stepped on it, what was this? You know, if you folded this up, what would it make? You know, it's a tetrahedron or, <sighs> you know, you know, some sort of D&D &D die or something. Um, and, and there were some basic sort of map reading type problems and some diagrams where they show you a, you know, um, basically a line of kind of like a road map except yeah. they're theoretically airways and various targets and it's like okay you know target a is doing this target b is doing this target c d so forth and then you know which two targets are gonna you know are gonna conflict and the key to that was not figuring out which two were going to conflict the key to that was looking at the answers and figuring out which one of the answers because you know, there were more than one that were going to conflict, yeah. but you couldn't choose that one. And so yeah. if you spent a lot of time doing that, you would never finish. Oh, my gosh. Um, so a bunch of that stuff. <laughs> anyway, did all that, walked out of there, didn't give it another thought. Ended up getting like a 94 on this stupid test. Wow. Yeah. And, oh, they were pissed. Is that out of 100? That was That's out of 100. Oh, okay. Passing Good. was considered 70. But they had been told in one of their studies, some numbers that if you didn't make at least 90 by this point in the process, this would have been 1990 or 91, I forget mm -hmm. now, but they had nearly filled up the pipeline at that point. And so they had been told, if you didn't make at least about a 90, you know, you probably were not going to get considered. Uh -huh. And so my brother made a, I don't remember, one of them got like a 69 and the other one got a 72. I forget which was which. But... um. And, and you have a 94. and I have a 90. Well, I have a <laughs> wow. 94, and I didn't care. But and they, you said that they were not pleased by that. Well, my brother and, and our friend, you know, the ones who, you yeah. know, they had actually wanted to go out and do this. Oh. I had done it just because we were going to go have barbecue after. <laughs> that was my sole interest at the time. And uh, so, yeah, they were like, wow, oh, man, you know. So, but, <laughs> but even then, from the time I did that, it was over a year before I actually became a federal employee oh, because wow. there's so many steps along the way. You take the test and then like a month, six weeks, two months later, I got this big envelope in the mail. Mm -hmm. It's 13 page application in triplicate. Every place <laughs> I'd ever worked, every yeah. place I'd ever gone to school, oh. every place I'd ever <laughs> lived. Um, all kinds of other stuff and they wanted real live references for all of this stuff wow and it's the one job i've ever had where i know they checked up on the references because yeah. i would hear back years later oh yeah we got a call we got a letter we got a visit wow wow, wow. a visit wow yeah um wow. so this is you know, serious yeah it's, wow. it's serious yeah. um they and uh don't know if that's still how they do it or not but at the time and it's like man if i really want to do this you know, filling out 13 pages in triplicate. Yeah. Um, but I figured, well, you know, I got nothing to lose, so I'll just keep 
going and we'll see where this goes. Did all that and it was another month, two months before I got, you know, before I heard back and they said, okay, we want you to report for a physical at, you know, such and such a, a time. Actually, no. First, it was an interview. I had to go up to Houston Center which from where I was living at the time was clear across town. Mm -hmm. Houston Center is on the edge of Houston Intercontinental Airport on the north side of Houston. Mm -hmm. And so went up there to, you know, have an interview. Mm -hmm. Um, And the interview basically consisted of me meeting, you know, whatever supervisor was on duty at the time. And we basically perched on corners of a break room table and chatted for 15, 20 minutes. Uh, I mean, serious interview this was not. Um, but I guess it's like, okay, we're going to you know, make sure there's actually a real person doing this stuff, right. get a, kind of get a feel. And then it was another month or six weeks after that, they sent me a letter or something saying, okay, you know, physical, you know, we need you to report to such and such clinic, it's, you know, day and time for a physical mm-hmm. and, uh, most thorough physical I've ever had, mm. um, you know, treadmill and the heart monitor, all the things. Um, more thorough than any of my pilot physicals had been. I was just going to say, I had visions of like being an astronaut. Um, it's not, it wasn't quite as bad as what they show you in, uh, in the movie, right stuff. You know, I didn't have to sit there and blow bubbles and (laughs) keep the ping pong ball afloat for three minutes or whatever it was, but you know, but, uh, but yeah, the whole thing, drug test and blood test and, and you know, um, and then crickets for two, three, four months. Wow. And I said, well, you know, so much for that. And then out of the blue, a letter shows up saying, you know, please report to, you know, FAA training headquarters in Oklahoma City, you know, January, such and such, room this and, you know, building this, room that. And so it's like, well, okay, I guess here we go. And uh, at the time, still didn't realize that, you know, this was the end of the line. And so chill up there. And it wasn't, I was there for five, six months. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was a couple, couple of months in before I realized, holy cow, I nearly didn't make this because they were wrapping it all up. Um, but at that time, the, you, you got to Oklahoma City, still there, um, the Mike Monroney um, FAA Center. I forget exactly what the rest of it's called, but, um, but you went through what they called the screen. They put you in a classroom for a week or two. And you basically got a cram course in, okay, this is what airplanes are. This is what they do. This is, you know, some basic rudimentary air traffic control rules. Mm-hmm. And then we went into the lab. And the labs were set up as non-radar en route air traffic control. How airplanes were separated basically in the 1940s, 50s, before we had radar mm-hmm. across the country where you could see all the airplanes. And so the first thing you had done in classroom is you had learned a map. They gave you this chart mm-hmm. that's about half the size of the top of this table. And uh, you had to be able, by Friday of that week, you showed up on Monday. By Friday, you had to draw that thing from memory. Wow. Oh. And so they gave you as many blanks as you wanted. And so everybody went home. You have it, you know stuck upon your bathroom wall you have it in the kitchen wherever and everybody just you were practicing drawing this map over and over and over again wow. um, because you had to know all the airways the radials the distances the uh, actual 
compass headings. It's not headings, but the you know the actual radials were okay. This is the such and such three one five radial. The angles between that radial and the one next to it. Um, the frequencies for all the various you know uh, facilities involved. Mm-hmm. The minimum altitude on these things. I mean intersections along the way. And the reason you had to know all this is because once you were in the lab, that was the map you were using yeah. for all the lab problems. Yeah. And it's this basically fictional, you know, chart that's kind of sort of modeled over, you know, the central United States. And we, we called it Aero Center. And there was a Tulsa and there was an Oklahoma City and stuff, but it, it didn't necessarily bear any, you know, it wasn't real. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it was place names that were at least vaguely familiar. And we started running lab problems. And the lab problems were en route air traffic control, where you have a clock and you had flight plan strips for every flight in the problem. Mm-hmm. And you got about five minutes before the problem started where you got to review, sort your strips because you had to put the strips in the right place or else it would make no sense once you actually started working. So you had a basically a header for each navigational fix. Mm-hmm. And you had strips for you know the airplanes as they crossed over that fix, essentially. And so you had about five minutes to sort them and put them where they need to be and kind of review the problem. You couldn't make any notes. but And then the instructor would start the clock. And for the next 30 minutes, you were controlling airplanes. Meanwhile, the other half of the class, because they broke, us in, in, you know, broke the class in half for this, mm-hmm. half of you were running the problem. The other half were what we call remotes, where you're sitting on the other side of the room with you know, a microphone and a headset and a script. And so, and you're looking at the same clock and at five minutes into the problem, you act like TWA 237 requesting a higher altitude. And at seven minutes into the problem, you act like, you know, McAllister Tower requesting an IFR release on Cessna 22 Poo Poo and so forth. And, you know, I'm listening to you. I'm listening to this. Is this kind of you like this kind of stuff? You like these challenges in life? I'm, I'm, I'm getting it's an a acquired sense of that. taste. It is a yes, because I'm sitting here and my anxiety is through the roof. Yeah, it and, sounds very stressful. Well, it is very stressful, and because you did this for eight hours a day for you know weeks, mm-hmm. um, you had you ran practice problems for the first week or two, basically to learn how, and and all these problems, of course, are are orchestrated where they all they. You know, there's conflictions built in. The whole point is that stuff's going to happen, and you've got to, you know, see it coming. Right. And sometimes the more advanced problems, basically the moment the clock starts, you need to be ready to say something because there are two airplanes wired for sound at like 10 minutes and 30 seconds into this problem. And so if you don't, you know, say, you know, both, you know, the moment yeah. the clock starts, if you don't issue some sort of control instruction to fix that, um, then, you know, by you know, it's too late, right. essentially, um, because at that time the airplanes have what we call a ten-minute push. So when you have an airplane that's projected to be at such and such a place at such and such a time, that spot at that time at that altitude needed to be open ten right. minutes before he got there, right. just to make sure that nothing else was there. Right. And so that's why I say you know, at ten minutes and thirty seconds, something's going to happen. Yeah, um, and of course, there's all sorts of things built in, and the whole time there's a tape running. 
So, yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you have a, there was a cassette tape recorder that you would put your tape in, and it was tied to the clocks. So when they started the clocks, the tape started recording. And then, you know, at the end of the problem, the, the remote got to go on break. The student got to rewind the tape and the instructor and they basically played it all the way through again and the instructor saying well this is where you should have done this that and the other thing and you know this is where and he's sitting there keeping track right and depending on what kind of mistake you made there were some number of points taken off if you had two airplanes run together that was minus 15 points but you couldn't have more than i think three of those in one problem if you had four the fourth one was basically for free and there, and there were errors like, okay, you gave the right instruction, but it's physically impossible for the airplane to do that. So that's like minus five points. But we'll pretend that it actually happened. Yeah. And so you could sometimes try and keep track as you're going. It's like, okay, I screwed that up. I screwed that up. Those are worth 20 points. But at this point, I've capped out on that kind of mistake. So I can make that mistake again, and it doesn't count anymore because I've already gotten as many hits on that as I you know, right. they can give me, but I want to avoid making this other mistake. So you would say, okay, well, I'm going to make this mistake or issue this impossible control instruction because it will keep me from getting dinged on this other category right. where I could still take another hit. But at this point, are you guaranteed a jump at this no. point? Are oh, you... no, no, no. So this is all just kind of like seeing if you got it. This is seeing if you got it. Okay. And well, I was going to ask at that point, did you kind of question, like, what, what did I get myself into? Yeah. Oh, every day. Um, <laughs> well, because it got to the point that you're doing this nonstop. And so you do it, and we would alternate. You would run a problem, and then you would go, and you would be remote for your partner, who would then run a problem. And then you'd swap, and you'd do it again and again. And you usually would end up running two or three problems each day. Hmm. And then they would give you extra, you know, you could have extra sets of strips where you and study partners could go and run more on your own at home. And... Um, and you were strongly encouraged to do that. Yeah. You, know, you were strongly encouraged not to bring your family or anybody with you. It's like, you're going to be here, and this is total immersion. You don't have time for anything else. You're in Oklahoma City. There's nothing to do anyway. Um, I'm <laughs> sorry, o- Oklahoma City. I'm sorry, Oklahoma City. But this was 1992, wow. so yeah. there wasn't quite as much there then as right. there. There was a blacksmithing school. Because at one point, I went and looked into that when things were looking a little dim. But um, <laughs> yeah, how long was this whole process? How this long were you whole with- thing ran for like nine weeks. Nine weeks. Okay. Um, And I do remember on, like, day one or day two of the class, when we were still in the classroom, the instructor saying, look to your left, look to your right. Mm -hmm. Before we're done with this, at least one of those people won't be here. And if they are, then it's you. Um, My class of 19, they broke us down into smaller classes, but my class of 19, seven of us made it. Wow. And there were some classes that weren't, you know, there were some classes that had nobody make it. Wow. Sounds um, like boot camp for... Yeah. It kind of <laughs> yeah. is, except we didn't have to do push-ups. Yeah. Um, but what they did do is every time we had a test or a graded problem, you got a new breakdown of what your, you know, what your situation was, where your score was. Because you had to finish this entire thing. It's still a government program, so you have to finish it with at least a 70. 70 is almost always the bare minimum for government tests. Right. 
And I remember about halfway through the graded problems, which started, like I said, about two weeks once we got into the lab, mm -hmm. the guy on my left could have died and it wouldn't have mattered. He still would have made it. He aced everything. It was disgusting. <laughs> wow. About the same time, the guy on my right could have started acing everything yeah. and it wouldn't have mattered. He was numerically illuminated. Wow. The Delta 767. Yeah. Nice 300. Yes. Um, but the funny thing is they didn't make you leave. You yeah. got to stay. And, I mean, you were on salary. So, I mean, there was no incentive for him to leave, even though he knew I'm, you know, I'm not going to make it. But I'm going to stick it out for the, the other, you know, four or five weeks because right. I'm on salary. Right. Why not, you know? And they don't do it that way now um, because it costs a hideous amount of money to do it this way. I mean, it just had to. Um, but, and then at the end of all of that, there was a final exam. Mm. And the day before the final exam, the instructor came around and gave each of us basically a, another grade sheet, if you will, showing, okay, this is what your standing is in the class right now. And if you needed it, this is the bare minimum score you need to make on that final exam in order to pass. Oh. No pressure. Oh. No. <laughs> I needed a 70.4 to pass. 70.4 was not a score you could make because of the number of problems. You could make a 70.2 or you could make a 70.6. Oh. Yeah. And actually, I got that wrong. I, I needed a point two. Uh-huh. And point two was not a, a score you could make. It was either point four or sixty nine point eight. Ah. So there's no margin for error. Yeah. <laughs> and my brother called and said, "Hey, I want to come see you graduate." And said, "Well, you may see me graduate. You may help me pack. And I don't know which one it's <laughs> going to be when you get here." Oh, that's terrifying. And it is because the day you got your grade sheets was that was the day that everything happened because. You know, we were done with lab problems. We were done with all that. You got, you got your grade sheet, and then we went through follow-on to determine, you know, what was going to happen next. Or you got out-processed, and by lunch, you were unemployed. Oh, my wow. goodness. Yeah. And so, um, and he had to drive up from Houston to Oklahoma City, which is a long day's drive. Yeah. Um, and uh, he got in late, 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 you know, that night. Oh, and it was over the weekend where we took the test on Friday. We got the grades back on Monday. Oh, and all of a sudden, weekend. after two months yeah. of just nonstop studying and the lab problems where you're doing lab problems so much that you're dreaming about lab problems. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, the times it's like, I don't know if I'm awake or I'm asleep. It's, right. it's that intense. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you're in Oklahoma City with nothing to do for two whole days. I mean, there's no study groups. There's nothing. Obviously, it's like, what do I do now? Um, and he got in late Sunday night. I still don't know, you know, what's going to happen. Yeah. And uh, this is back before cell phones. So, yeah. you know, next day I go to work and I still, you know, go to work. I go to you know, class. Still don't know. Is he going to get to see me graduate or is he going to help me pack? Oh, um, and so anyway, I got like a 70.4 or whatever whatever it took i mean one question either way wow um and uh which is crazy yeah and how did you feel when you got that score i mean 
after all that. Relieved. Um, just because, I mean, partly just because it's over. Yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> partly because, well, at least, you know, now I don't have to go home yet. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it was because there was somebody in my class who, who was basically the same situation and had the 69.8. Oh. And at that point, and there's a process where you could try and retake something. I was going to ask, yeah. If there's some, you know, I was sick that day or whatever. Don't know what ended up happening. But, uh, yeah, there were a lot of people at home that day. Ugh. And, but, but the thing is, you think about it, and every step of this process basically weeds out people. Um, you know, first, is a, at that time, the written exam, there's something comparable now, I think. But then the physical, the interview, um, now there's a, basically a psychological profile type thing that, you know, one of these things where they ask you to, you know, it, an impossible question and you know you want impossible answer a or impossible answer b and you know how you get something useful out of that i don't know but you know but that's part of the process and then you get to whatever your first facility is going to be in my case that was monroe louisiana i didn't choose it yeah (laughs) (laughs) um were they just pulling you know names of cities out of a hat or um i assume there was there was a system where um, facilities that had openings would be assigned trainees. Okay. okay. Those who graduated at the top of the class got to choose. Mm. Those of us at the bottom of the class got what was left, whatever was left over. Right. And so, having so having, there was there was a need in Monroe at the there, time. Yeah. Well, and. And that was where I nearly pulled the plug because I had been to Monroe, Louisiana before. And just to be clear, it is Monroe, not Monroe. Um, Monroe is in Wisconsin. Ah, got it. Monroe is in Louisiana. I should and, know. My, my brother went <laughs> yeah. to school there, but of course I'm still pronouncing so, it incorrectly. Monroe. Well, I mean, like you do, but... Um, so you were you were you were willing to, to just walk away from everything that you've been through for that last nine weeks... Because wow. I didn't want to move to oh my Monroe, gosh. Louisiana. But it's like, well, I don't really have any better, you know, anything better going, so why not? Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you know, I can always get there and pull the plug later. And so I went. And Monroe, it's a hard place. As a newcomer, is is not a particularly friendly place to be. Um, it's a small town that's kind of just gotten big, um, sidetrack. In aviation, Monroe's claim to fame is that it's the birthplace of Delta Airlines, um, which originally started off as Duff Holland, I think, dusters. Delta Airlines originally started as a crop dusting service. Right. Um, lots of cotton and soybean and stuff in that area. Um, but great place to raise a kid not a really exciting town it is a college town but you know there's it's a great place to learn how to be an air traffic controller um monroe is i believe it still is what we call an up down where it's not just a control tower it's also got a radar room you know approach control okay so you would go up and learn how to work the control tower and then you would go downstairs and learn how to work approach control, you know. And which is a 
a neat thing that we don't have here at LAX. At LAX, you're in a tower, and that's where you are. The, the approach control is 100 miles away in San Diego. Um, but it's a nice thing to be in an up-down because you know what's going to happen when you tell the airplane to contact departure or contact tower because right. you're also familiar with what those other controllers are doing. Right. Um, and whereas here, the, you know, that's been lost. Um, on the other hand, there's no way we could keep you know, a hundred and some odd controllers current in the tower if they also had to work the radar room, which is part of why it's been split. Um, but, so I went to Monroe, spent about four years there, ended up liking it by the time I left, and uh, went from there to New Orleans. Um, you know, the big airport in New Orleans. At the time, Moisant uh, Field... Now, uh, the Louis B. Armstrong Memorial Airport, I believe is what they call it, um, and uh, spent about six years there before coming out here to LAX, and have been at LAX most of the time since. I went and did a, a quick touch-and-go in Memphis um, in 2000, like five, six, seven-ish, um, and that didn't go as well as hoped and ended up coming back to LAX and they've been stuck with me ever since. <laughs> is, is, so do you start at a smaller airport and kind of work yourself up to like a size of LAX? Is that how it works? Yes. Uh, it's just like pilots okay. in that regard. Okay. You start out in you know a, a Piper or a Cherokee or okay. a, a Cessna or whatever right. and you work your way up. Um, LAX is a horrible place to try and learn how to be an air traffic controller right. and we've tried. Um, it did not turn out well. Yeah. Um, we were, you know, but there was a period where the agency tried hiring people off the street because we have an impending staff shortage. And it's like, we're just going to hire a bunch of people and throw them out there and see what sticks. Yeah. Oh. And a few of them, you know, there was potential in a few of them. Right. Some of them, uh, the ones that had potential, we were able to salvage and send to... You know, neighboring airports, Santa Monica, Torrance, El Monte, Van Nuys, um, and some of them come back. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just going to ask you. So, someone working in Van Nuys, do they do they see the feature of working at LAX? Is that something that I think for some of them it is. Yeah. Uh, some of them come and visit and realize they don't want to. Yeah. But uh, we've got a fair number of controllers at LAX now who, at one point. We're at Van Nuys earlier in their career. Okay. Um, when I got to LAX, my primary instructor um, had previously been at Van Nuys. Um, Van Nuys has parallel runways, right. which LAX has as well. Right. And so there are things you learn doing that. Right. Um, but um, whereas like Santa Monica, there's only one runway. Um, at one point, it was the busiest single runway airport in the world. Wow. I don't think it is anymore since they shortened the runway. Right. But uh, still a busy little airport in the last four or five years. It's going to be around, it sounds like. Right. Um, but um, And you guys still have to deal with it. Because I, I hear you guys, oh, wait, hold on. You're not going anywhere. we got to wait for Santa Monica. Well, um, if you look at the chart, you can see that the airport runways at LAX and the runway at Santa Monica the you draw a straight line out from our runways and their runway and they eventually cross oh, 
And the noise abatement restrictions at Santa Monica are such that an airplane taking off there cannot turn away from our traffic until it's out over the water. And uh, so because of that, there's no guarantee that their airplane will be separated from ours. And so LAX Tower actually controls the release of airplanes out of Santa Monica. Now, the VFR guys in the pattern, they're on their own. Santa Monica Tower works that. Mm -hmm. But an airplane that's departing on an IFR flight plan into the national airspace system has to be separated from all the other ones. And that's how... You know, we handle that converging situation is that LAX Tower will build a hole in our departure sequence and we'll call over to Santa Monica and say, yeah, Santa Monica, Cessna 22 Poo Poo released. And at that point, I'm stopped. And, you know, you've probably seen sometimes where I've got a line of airplanes sitting over here. Yeah. Do, 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 yeah. Nothing going yeah. on here <laughs> because I'm waiting for something, you know, to happen offshore where I can't release. My, I can't start departing airplanes again until the Santa Monica airplane is out of the way, essentially. Right. Um, and because of the terrain north of Santa Monica, um, they can't turn northbound until they're out of about 3,000 feet. And, you know, the little Cherokees and Cessnas and stuff, it takes them several minutes to get there. Right. And so, yeah, we end up waiting. Um, the, the Learjets and so forth, well, they don't get many Learjets anymore, but, you know, the jets and the turboprops aren't so bad. It's the little guys yeah. that, that kind of slow things down. And so sometimes the little guy kind of sits there at Santa Monica cooling his heels for quite a while right. before, you know, I, we can find a convenient spot where it's not going to completely hose a thousand passengers right. you know, while the, you know, the training flight goes out. Right. So, but... Yeah, that's always yeah. been a question. You know, what's the holdup? Why are we waiting so long for these planes to depart? And so that would be one example. That is one of the many reasons. Um, another reason um, is that some of it depends on where the planes are going. Um, because if you look at the, you know, the runway at LAX are all parallel, basically. They're all about a 251-degree compass heading. Uh, they're called two fives and two fours just because if you have three, you can do two five left, right, and center. If you have four, okay, yeah. So, you know, for instance, Memphis has a three six left, right, and center. But when you have four, uh, and you see the same thing at DFW, where, okay, you're going to have pairs. You can have a two five left, two five right, two four left, two four right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the number doesn't exactly correspond to the compass heading, but it's close right. ish. Um, and DFW has the same thing. Atlanta does the same thing. Yeah. Phoenix, you know, lots of airports have something like that. And at LAX, we try to run the north side, the two fours, and the south side, the two fives, like separate airports, where the tower controller on the south side, what we call local one, works his airplanes independently of what the tower controller on the north side, which we call local two, mm-hmm. is doing with his or her airplanes. But it depends on where the airplane's going to go once it's airborne, because you can look at the departure procedures. Some of them turn south, right. some of them turn north. Right. And so the guys going south that are on the north side of the airport, yeah, so southwest, for instance, is going to conflict with basically anything departing off the south side of the airport. And if you get northbounders on the south side, they're going to conflict with 
in basically anything off the north side of the airport. And so there's a certain amount of what we call crossover coordination where one of the locals calls the other one and says, hey, I've got a, you know, fill in the blank, you know, depending on what kind of departure procedure. The, most of our departure procedures have names. Um, I provided you guys with a couple of charts, but it's, this is stuff that you can look up online. If you're interested in looking at the departure procedures or any of the other charts, you can go to airnav.com. That's A-I-R-N-A-V.com. And it will ask you, and you, you know, select the airports tab and then put in LAX. And you can pull up every single, you know, approach plate. That's the instrument approaches. You can look at all the instrument departures. You can see the official description of all the runways, all that good stuff. Yeah. So that's all available publicly. So one example, though, and we see this a lot. I'll just take the Tokyo Haneda routes. Okay. A lot of airlines uh, now uh, go there. Yep. Uh, there's a Delta A330neo. Who who is on the north side mm-hmm. sometimes takes off on two four left more than Likely. more than enough takes off sometimes on two five left two five right but then you'll see another flight going to Tokyo Haneda on the southern side and then they'll go up to two four left on the north side yep. and take off so they're going to the same destination but people uh, the the flights are either you know going north they're, they're or not south. always going to the runway closest to them. yes right. um, some of that depends on what route they filed to get out of here okay and sometimes it comes down to the aircraft performance you'll have uh, and you'll hear this a lot in the summer on ground control where you'll have somebody on the north side particularly uh but haneda is one of the primary offenders where you'll have a departure tell the ground controller we require two five right for operational uh right. necessity right um for you know, aircraft performance because the two fives are longer than the two fours. Right. That's, you know, if I could change something at this airport, I wish all the runways were the same length because yeah. that would simplify things a lot. Yeah. But they're not. And so there are times that they need the extra couple thousand feet okay. that two five right offers gotcha. over what you can get on two four left. Okay. And so, yes, they should be on the north side of the airport, but they can't do it because the plane's too heavy or the wind's not favorable or the temperature or all of the above and so they go to the south side that's why and you i've seen it too where you've got the delta that ends up going to two five right and sometimes two five left sometimes. and crosses the runways we can never figure that out um yeah yeah that's kind of an oddball normally they go to two five left if there's something wrong with two five right oh, and now the exception to that is if it's a seven four eight hundred or a 380 right because two five right is not usable by either of those airplanes because the wingspan is just too great. They'll, you know, they're going to get yeah. too close to something else, and so they'll go to two five left. Not what we like to do with that airplane because it's a lot of it's a lot of bother, honestly. Yeah. Um, because what happens is when the three eighty will say because that's easier crosses 2-5 right on his way to get to 2-5 left, mm-hmm. if he can't cross both runways at the same time, he'll give an instruction, you know, like Emirates, you know, 1-2 Echo, because that seems to be one of their call signs now. It's actually leave across runway 2-5 right, hold short runway 2-5 left. So he can cross 2-5 right, but he right. cannot cross 2-5 left. And there's right. lines on the ground where they're supposed to stop. Right. And normally, while when we do that, most of us are planning trying to time it so that I don't actually have to make him stop. 
Okay. Um, because the entire time he's holding short of 2-5 left, having just crossed 2-5 right, mm -hmm. he's not actually clear of 2-5 right. So I've lost the use of runway 2-5 right while he's holding in between because right. the airplane is just too big. And so my goal doing that normally is that I'm going to start him across with the hope, intent, that before he has to stop, I'll be able to continue him across 2-5 left. Right. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way where, you know, I'm normally waiting for an arrival to right. clear the runway. Right. If they don't get off or they slow down on final on the whole, you know, whatever, sometimes, you know, I can't do it. And he ends up having to stop. And the challenge is that Taxiway Hotel, which is the taxiway between the two fives, is not at the same level as the runways. It's actually lower. Mm. And that's by design. Really? Wow. But what it means is that he's sitting there short of two five left in between the runways. It's uphill for him to get going mm. to then cross two five left. And it takes, you know, something like a three eighty. It takes a lot of yeah. power to, you know, a lot of what they call breakaway thrust right. to get that thing moving again. And if he's stationary, um, you know, as a controller, I'm sitting there looking at the hole between arrivals that I'm trying to get him across. And so, you know, if the arrivals are running kind of tight on the final, I may not be able to get him across, but I don't want to get him started until... You know, I'm fairly certain I'm going to make it because once he starts, I've lost the inboard two five right, right, and I can't get him across two five left. Well, I'm basically stopped. But then once we get him over on, you know, the other side, he's on taxiway alpha. He's taxing his way down. There are new rules that come into effect where if I've got two three eighties, they both have to be at the departure end of the runway. So if I've got a three eighty land and turns off on the taxiway alpha, I can't launch another 380 until the first one is basically back up to the other end of the runway mm. because there just isn't enough wingtip clearance once the thing is going, you know, 100 miles an hour down the runway. And that also applies to 74 800s. Right. And that's a trap at this airport because you put a, a 380 on the runway or you put a 74 800 on 25 left. Mm. If the ground controller is not really paying attention, we have 74-800s that park in the cargo ramp. You know, Korean, uh, Nippon Cargo, sometimes Polar, uh, yeah. Polar yeah. will be parked along Taxway Alpha there. Right. And if you push one of those airplanes on the Taxway Alpha, now I can't depart the first one because those, you know, the second one is too far down the runway. Mm. And uh, But the other thing you have to worry about is just that Okay, I'm going to depart this 380. I need a hole between arrivals on final where I can get him out there on the runway and get him to go. And, you know, you've seen those airplanes. They don't do anything fast. Yeah. That, you know, that's uh, you know, over a million pounds of airplane. And if he had to go to 2-5 left, it's because he's really heavy right. or it's really hot or both. And so nothing happens fast. But while he's not doing anything fast... Everybody else is at normal speed. Right. Yeah. And even they slow down to 120 miles an hour on the final, that's still two miles a minute. And there's an awful lot of planes at this airport that cannot go that slow. Right. Yeah. So you sit there and you sit there because I need a hole. And sometimes we actually have to call approach control and say, hey, 
I need you to build me a hole so I can get this guy out. And sometimes that takes a while because they've got a solid line all the way back to the state line. Yeah. And, you know, it's so that's why we don't like them over there. You, you, you don't like the <laughs> A380s. We you kind of like touched on that on our, yeah, well, when you came by and said well, hello a few months ago. The 380 doesn't really fit at this airport. Um, one of the things that uh, I've shared with y'all is the list of restrictions that apply to the 380 or the 74-800, although the 380 is worse, as far as where I can go and where I cannot go with that airplane. And it's a lot. And they just don't fit. I mean, this airport <laughs> was built for stuff the size of a 727. And the 380, you know, there's not many airports that can handle a 380, right. and we just barely can. Um, so why all of us plane spotters are like, yes, more A380s more, back yeah. at LAX. Later, Tater is over here. Yeah. Like, no. Well, and I just saw a headline where we are going to be one of the most diverse 380 spotting airports in the world. Yeah. Really? Um, wow. We've got currently, I think, five carriers. We've got Emirates. We've got Qantas. We've got Lufthansa is going to be bringing theirs back. Yes. Yeah. British Airways, I think, is sort of seasonal. And Korean Air, I think, is bringing Co- back two well, we've daily. Got, we currently have Korean and, and Asia. Asiana, yeah. which is sort of interesting because they're becoming one company. Right. I'm kind of right. curious what's going to happen there. But yeah, hmm. so we've got a fair, yeah. you know, fair number of 380s um we used to have a few more but you know china southern has parked all of theirs right. air france has parked all of theirs right. and well but, now now everyone yeah. listening knows because the, the, one of yeah. the most asked questions to us is why why do the a380s always go to the north why can't they just come to the south yeah <laughs> well and arriving on the south side if he lands on two five left that's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. Departing off of two five right of two five left is a much bigger thing. Yeah, um, oh, you're yeah. going to see that. Uh, I think I might have touched on this the other day when we were talking, but you're going to see that early next year because there's a bunch of construction plan from the north side of the airport where the, the airport is building some additional runway exits, and to do that, at some point they will actually have to close the runway so that they can do the tie-in work. They're going to start with 2-4 two, uh, two left, I think, is the one that closes first. Okay. Um, which is not that big a deal for departures because the 380 can't depart on 2-4 right anyway. So when 2-4 right closes, no big deal. When 2-4 left closes, right. then all the 380 departures will have to go with 2-5 left because that's the only other runway. Okay. And... <laughs> 2-4 right is supposed to close kind of at the end of the summer. Okay. 2-4 left closes basically early next year. Okay. Um, Jotting that down in my calendar. Yeah, well, the, and it's, <laughs> I may have told you wrong when we talked about it the other day. I've since actually seen sort of a revised calendar, okay. and it's... It's, um, it's still coming. It's, it's still it, coming. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this time next year, they will be or will have been um, on 2-5 left. Okay. And so, yeah, all the folks on the hill are going to get a good view. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so now, when the closures happen here on the north side, because we have an e-jet coming in. Oh. Yay. <laughs> Whee. <laughs> Will they be able to conduct like, both landings, they meaning you guys, uh, conduct both landings and departures on the same runway that is open? Yes. Okay. Um, we do that sometimes anyway. Um, you've probably seen 
once a month, the airport will close one runway or another to do what we call the monthly inspections, where they'll close the runways, usually kind of middle of the afternoon, which is kind of the quietest part of the daylight hours. And they'll get out there with, you know, a couple of dozen trucks and, and whatnot, and they're looking at all the lights. They're really inspecting all the expansion gaps to make sure that the rubber strips aren't coming up. They'll sometimes they'll touch up the paint. Sometimes they scrub the rubber off the runway, all that kind of stuff. And it normally is about an hour. Um, but during that time, that runway's closed. They really don't like it when you land an airplane with vehicles on the runway. They get really upset about that. It's the funniest thing. But um, so we will be, you know, it will be a single runway operation on that side of the airport for the hour or however long it takes. And normally we coordinate with approach control, but they give us a little bit more space between the arrivals so that we can get out some of the departures. If there's a big line of departures forming, we may end end up actually sending some of them to the other side of the airport. So, you know, there have been cases where you probably looked out there, it's like, what is Southwest doing over there? Well, you know, Southwest is a southbounder and the runway's closed and there's like 10 other airplanes already waiting. So, you know, there can he I, goes. Can I ask you, how rare is it that two planes would be landing at the same time, either on the two fours or the two fives? Is that a rare event here at LAX? You mean where there's, you know, two four left and two four the, right? At the exact same time. Um, we, we've had it on the live stream and I've caught yeah. it while I was up at the H Hotel one day. Okay. It just caught me by surprise. It is not that common anymore. Yeah. When I got to LAX, that was. That was standard procedure. Oh, okay. Um, and that was part of what made training here kind of challenging mm. because there were times that we were landing all four runways. Oh, wow. And <laughs> um, But you still had to get your departures out. And you still had to get the arrivals on the outboard runway across the inboard runway. Jeez. Um, Good yeah. luck. <laughs> well, and as a footnote to history, I hope at that time, LAX led the nation in runway incursions, mm-hmm. where there's an airplane or a vehicle on the runway when they're not supposed to be. One of the things we did to basically fix that is we got arrivals off of the inboard, particularly 25 right. Um, 25 right is the worst arrival runway because the airplane exits the runway right into the terminal complex. Right. Two four left, not so bad. They're, you know, a mile and a half down there. But on the south side of the airport, they come off I mean you see where they exit normally. Yeah. Picture them exiting inboard runway at that position and boom, they're right there at the terminal. Yeah. yeah. And as a ground controller, that stinks. Yeah. Because you know the south side of the airport gets pretty busy. There's a lot of gates on the south side of the airport that have to push onto an active taxiway. That's the only place for that airplane to go. And so if you've tied up one of your taxiways pushing an airplane off the gate, you've only got one other taxiway left to move everybody else around. And here comes somebody off the arrival runway, smack dab in the middle of your pie. And yeah, so it's not fun. Um, I don't really miss that. Would you know if back then, uh, were there just more flights that they could do that? There were. Um, LAX right now is, we're still down from our before time numbers. Um, Before the pandemic, we would run easily 2,000 flights a day. Right now, we're getting almost back up to 1,700. Okay. Um, And, uh, but 
other stuff has changed since then. Um, this was probably before you were watching on a regular basis. We used to have a lot more uh, regional propeller planes. Uh, SkyWest flew Brazilians. Oh. American Eagle had Saab 340s. Before that, they had jet streams. And for a while, we had Horizon still had Dash 8s or right. Q400. Yeah. Um, those are all gone now. Um, and as a result, there are, we have flights going places that we don't have flights going anymore because the jet can't get into that airport. Um, yeah. Palomar, for instance, we used to have flights going down to Carlsbad. Carlsbad has a fairly short runway. Hmm. And when SkyWest was flying to Brasilia, the Brasilia could do it. Yeah. RJ kind of sort of apparently is really runway restricted. And so they don't do it. Um, hmm. They used to go to St. George, Utah. Don't do that anymore. A hmm. um, couple other places that... When they parked the Brazilians, they quit serving those airports. Interesting. And, uh, but while they were doing that, we had a lot more flights to a lot more places with the regionals than what we have now. And so, yes, we were running more airplanes, but a lot of them were smaller airplanes. Yeah, okay. okay. And, of course, now we've got 350s. Yes. And Singapore A350 flying yeah. over our heads. Well, later Taylor. I think we're just getting started here. Yeah. <laughs> what do you say? So. <laughs> I think uh, stay for a little bit more later. Just a little tater. bit longer. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. All right. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. Much more to come here on the Plane Jockeys Podcast. Welcome back. Folks, again from the flight deck. We hope you're enjoying those luxurious seats and plentiful complimentary beverages. All right, this is a it's a podcast. Well, then we hope you're enjoying the banter. Stay tuned for more. Oh yes, so much more to the story, isn't there? Oh yes, so, always. Uh, later, Tater. So we're 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 hearing that you've you've spent many uh, time around the U.S leading you back to Los Angeles a couple of times. Yes. And you decided to stay here. Yes. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, let's see here. Um, a, they, they asked me back. Um, so, but honestly, this place, I mean, y'all watch the planes here. You've been to other places. Yeah. And the, DFW, you're going to see every airplane American owns. You go to Memphis, you're going to see every airplane FedEx owns. You go to Houston, you're going to see every airplane that United owns. LAX, you're going to see a whole smorgasbord of airplanes. <laughs> yes. Um, there are airplanes that you can see here. You can't really see anywhere else in you know the United States or in North America. Um, we were talking about 380s earlier. At one point, we led the nation in 380s. And we had airlines that the only place they came in all of North America was LAX. And so there's just the amazing variety. No one airplane call or no one airline can call this a hub. I mean, some of them call it a focus city or something, but we're not dominated by any one airline, which is kind of unusual. Uh, we have Southwest, American, Delta, United, Spirit, JetBlue, Alaska, Hawaii, and, and you know, and a bunch of others, plus all the international carriers. But there's no one airline that owns this airport, so to speak. And so, 
it just the sheer variety of, of you know paint schemes, aircraft type. It, it's hard to touch that. And I mean, face it, they pay me to look out the window and talk to these airplanes. I right. Mean, it's but obviously you can't beat that. Yeah, but you're in the aviation. You wanted to be a pilot. Are you considered a plane spotter or an av geek or any one of those uh, titles? A, a, an av geek, maybe. Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, yeah. I wouldn't consider myself a plane spotter. That's my job. Yeah. Is to, right. <laughs> you know, um, the uh, the American taxpayer pays me to <laughs> look at these airplanes. Right. And, you know, that's a pretty cool gig. Yeah. It is. <laughs> I mean, if you like airplanes, this is a great job. Yeah. Um, the downside is that sometimes. It's a neat airplane, but I've got to go do something else. I yeah. can't sit and look at that airplane because I need to talk to this other one, or right. I need to check the radar and see, you know, what's going on, or talk to one of the other controllers, or look at flight plans, or, or you know, do what I'm actually being paid to do. Right. And so there are times that, oh, that was a cool plane. Uh, yes, geez, you know, too bad I didn't actually get to see it. Um, I'm curious. But, do you have a favorite airplane or a type that you really like? Um, oh, jeez. Um, wide bodies would be the TriStar, mm, which yeah. is basically extinct at this point, which is kind yeah. of sad. They yeah. built them here in Southern California, up right. the road in Burbank. At, uh, Palmdale. Palmdale, actually. It, yeah. It, yep. Actually, Palmdale is where Lockheed is now. Lockheed used to be in Burbank. Now it's a mall. You can drive by on the 5 and see all the airplanes on posts that used to be built there. Um, yeah. but um, <laughs> the Empire Center, yes, yeah, you know, there's they've got an SR 71, they've yeah. got a P 80, they've got a P 38, there's a Constellation, one yeah. of the most beautiful airplanes of all time, yeah, and I think they've got uh, a Lockheed Vega, I think it's actually the Winnie Mae, um, oh. but uh, yeah, and you can see all that from the five freeway. There used that used to be an airplane factory, oh, back yeah, in no, the, I, I mean. I, Yes, All I've, of Los Angeles used to be an airplane factory back in the day. I mean, they used to build airplanes in Downey. Yeah. And basically, all we've got left now is Northrop over, you know, south of LAX. And, of course, Robinson Helicopter is oh. in Torrance. And right. I think they build more helicopters every year than any other helicopter manufacturer at this point. Wow. And they're everywhere. Um, so, but, yeah, as far as my favorite wide body, the TriStar. Yeah. Um, it sadly kind of lost out to the DC-10, which is now also rapidly becoming extinct. I think right. FedEx has parked all of theirs. Yeah. They were the last big DC-10 operator here. Um, we still see MD-11s. FedEx still has some of those. They're going away, but they aren't gone yet. Um, global... World, uh, somebody else operates. Western Global, yes. Western Global, yeah. thank you. Uh, I think still has MD-11s. Yeah. And that's about it. And those airplanes were also built. Long Beach, yeah. you know, right down the road here. I mean, this this whole area used to be one giant aircraft factory, and uh, of course, the real estate's too valuable now. Right. But wow, so many, uh, so much history. Oh, loads yeah. of history. Yeah. Well, and consider that this airport is nearly a hundred years old. You know, the uh, you know what is now LAX dates back to you know, at least 1928. They held the national air races here in 1928. Um, it wouldn't be LAX without the without, sirens. With an, ambient, without an ambulance, <laughs> yes. We've been lucky, actually, so far. Yeah. Well, because there's a fire station just yes, right over yes. there. Well, there's it's a busy another place. one over there. And, you know, very busy so, place. LAX. Very busy place. Um, but, yeah, uh, this was originally Mines Field back in the 20s. It right. didn't. The city of Los Angeles didn't actually buy the airport until the late 30s. 
because depression, they needed a bond issue that the voters wouldn't approve uh, because money. Um, but uh, airline service started here in 1946. Prior to that, it had been across town at Glendale right. or Burbank. Right. And nice uh, D- uh, Delta A330neo. Yeah. It's amazing how much quieter the newer airplanes are. Yes. I mean, compare that one to the old 330s. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, amazing <laughs> amount of difference. I, a few weeks ago, uh, flew southwest back home and back. And on the way out was in an 800. On the way back was my first time in a Max. No. And I was amazed. I mean, the passenger experience in the Max, not that different right. from an 800, but it's a lot quieter. Yeah. I was really impressed at how much quieter the Max was for you know as a passenger very um, nice and that was one of the things i remember when the 380 first showed up airbus brought their demonstrator through here back in the early 2000s and i remember being surprised at how quiet that airplane is compared to think back at that point we had 747 400s which we don't have hardly any of them more. And we would still have 200s flying cargo. Yeah. Much noisier airplanes oh, than yes. the Airbus. <laughs> the Airbus 380 is relatively a quiet airplane. It's amazing to see something that big moving at all. And the amount of noise that it, it doesn't make. Um, I mean, it's, I, as a controller, don't love that airplane, but it's amazing nonetheless to, to see it go. And... Um, it's kind of a shame that it was kind of commercially a failure. Yeah, uh, I think Airbus ended up building, you know, 250 some odd of those airplanes, and I do recall reading one point that the break-even point for that project was 400. Mm. Oh. So I don't know that you know they ever actually made any money on it, but it was certainly a halo product for them. There were actually plans at one point for an even bigger version. You know, there was going to be. The one we see now is the A380-800. There were plans, at least on paper, for a 900 that was going to be some amount longer than the one we see now. Because you look at the one we have now, it's like, wow, it seems a little short for how big the rest of the airplane is. And, you know, it's like looking at a a Dreamliner 800, or 8, I guess, you know, 7-8, and then look at a 9 or a 10, which, like, well, that's... That, you know, the proportions are better, but you look at one of the short Dreamliners, it's like, yeah, that, aren't you a little short for a Dreamliner? I agree, yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you, though, uh, you're sitting here and you're talking about the airplanes. Are, are most people that work in the tower, are they into aviation, or is it just it, it's just a Some a, a of us job-ish? are, yeah. and some it's it's a job. Yeah. Um, the amount of aviation, at least interested folks at LAX, I would say somewhere between, let's call it 50%. Okay. Um, the pilot population in the control tower is around 25-30% of us have okay. some sort of pilot you know, license or training or experience. Okay. Um, we've got at least one CFI, a certified flight instructor. We've got at least one uh, who is type rated in jets. Um, I'm neither of those, but uh, you know we've got a fair amount of pilot experience here. Um, I don't know that that translates across the system. That said, every facility I've worked, a whopping total of four, I was not the only pilot there. And in most cases, I was not even the most experienced pilot there. Um, you know, there was always 
a couple of other, you know, pilots. You know, some of them active, some of them not. But, um, you know, there's there are pilots in, I would say, most air traffic facilities at some level or another. And I would imagine having that kind of experience uh, definitely adds to your role as an air traffic controller. It can... But one of the things I have to keep in mind, this is something that a lot of people I think I run into the, in the general public don't realize, I can't fly the plane. And this is something when I first reported to Monroe and my first supervisor said, you know, you can't fly the plane for them. When you're right. up here, you're a controller. And they do the pilot stuff, you do the controller stuff. And so, you know, I'm aware of what's going on in the cockpit, but... That's not my primary concern. I mean, that pilot is responsible for one airplane. I'm responsible for potentially a dozen. And so he does what I do. I don't tell him what to do with the flaps or the, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And he hopefully doesn't try and tell me what the sequence is supposed to be. Right. But uh, can you kind of describe you what your, your day is like? So do you work like an eight-hour day or is it like a 12-hour day? And, and you're kind of you're kind of not – I mean, we hear you on the, the live stream. Sometimes you're in the North Tower. Sometimes in your South Tower. You're doing ground. You're doing this. You're doing that. Can you kind of explain what a typical day at it's LAX – a moving target. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's uh, something that pretty much every air traffic control facility, all the controllers – assigned to that facility will be cross-trained to do anything in that facility. So by the time you're finished training at LAX, you can work tower on either side. You can work any of the ground control positions. You can work the clearance delivery position. You can work helicopters, any of that. You're, okay. you know, you, you're, we're cross-trained to do all of that so that it doesn't matter who comes up the stairs if I need a ground controller. The next person up the stairs, assuming they're not still in training, will fill that hole. And so, you know, there's the advantage of anybody can do anything. But that also means that you're not doing the same thing all day long. Right. Yeah. And you, know, you ask, we, most of us work eight-hour shifts. Some of us work ten. And just to be contrary, if you work nine... Uh, we are not allowed to go beyond 10 hours in a day. We're not allowed to go beyond six days in a week. So there is, there are some limitations, just like pilots have crew duty time limitations. Um, you might hear sometimes on frequency that, uh, you know, a plane gets to the end of the runway or is taxiing out, and they're worried about crew timeout yeah. because if they don't get airborne by such and such a time the crew won't have enough duty time left to complete the flight. And, you know, there have been instances where they get to the end of the runway and I've got, you know, basically they've got 30 seconds left and Ooh. it takes that guy 35 seconds to get across the runway before I can say clear for takeoff. Ugh. And too bad, so sad. Um, we try to avoid that. They normally give us a heads up, hey, you know, this flight is going to be, you know, the crew is time sensitive. But, you know, there's... They're not the only airplane out there. And yeah. one of the ways that we work, and this is the beauty of not working for any one airline, and this is one of the reasons we do this, is that it's basically a first-come, first-served basis. And so, you know, if an airplane needs help that way, we'll try and help them. But I'm not going to get everybody else out of the way just because this one airline can't, you know, is having scheduling issues. Right. Um, anyway, that's an extreme, you know, case. But... 
that's you know that's how we work. I mean that's our our primary function. Just and this comes basically right out of the book is the safe, orderly, and expeditious movement of air traffic throughout the national airspace system. That is probably almost a direct quote from page one of our rule book. <laughs> that is what that is the official description of my job. That's what I do. Yeah. You know, all the clear for takeoff and clear the land and taxi here and climb and maintain all that's how we do it. Yeah. But that is what we you know now, we actually do. How come sometimes we hear you for like maybe half an hour on North Tower and then all of a sudden you you're moved away and you might come back, you may not. Um, part of what we do is, um, you know, one of the things about having everybody trained to work on everything is we try not to leave anybody in one spot for more than about two hours at the longest. Okay. And But we aim for about an hour and a half just so that you've got some wiggle room. But there's a constant sort of flow of people coming in and out throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Um, at any one time, I mean, like right now, there's probably eight maybe ten people in that control tower Mm -hmm. you'll hear some of them some of them you aren't hearing because they're doing something where they're not talking on the frequency but we rotate through so you work for an hour hour and a half on tower you take a break you come back up and generally you will go to a different position just for the variety right and so that everybody stays proficient on everything if you always do ground control right and then one day you end up on the tower, well, you're going to be kind of rusty, not great, um, and vice versa. I mean, there are definitely people who prefer one or the other. Right. But um, the idea is that everybody is able to do everything. And so we rotate. And sometimes because there are people coming in or there's someone who has to go home, the, the shift rotation is, okay, I need you to work over here for a half hour. Then take a short break because I need you to come back up and send that person home. And I'm glad that's not my job because I, I stink at trying to run the rotation and figure out, okay, <laughs> I need to get this person out of, you know, off position because they go home. But who am I going to replace them with? Yeah. And then you throw in something like training where basically you've got two bodies that you have to treat as one because you have an instructor paired with the student. And when they get off position, they have to have debrief time as well as a break. So that kind of, you know, that's a, a, an extra cog in the rotation that you have to figure on. And they can only work certain positions or they're training on certain positions. And all of that goes into the rotation. And so sometimes, you know, it's, and what will happen sometimes is that I'll be filling in a spot and then someone who needs to be on that position comes back from break and they'll replace me and I will we call it slide slide over to some other position where I'm still up there working but I'm not where I was you know a few minutes ago and I'll be there for you know a half hour or an hour or whatever before I get to go on break and so but normally you won't hear somebody for more than about an hour and a half before they get replaced. And those transitions, they're like flawless. You go from one person to the next, it we is... hope uh, so. Yes, uh, well, um, <laughs> I'm listening to you guys all the time. I'm like, wow, that was yeah. just uh, well, flawless. You know, and what you're not seeing is how that happens because yeah. the person who takes my place doesn't just step up and start talking. Right. They come up, they plug in, they're listening to what's going on, they're watching what's going on, and then... It, you know, when they think they're ready, 
I will actually give them a briefing. And this is not on the frequency, but it is recorded. Um, everything we say is recorded. And so, you know, we have a checklist of, okay, this is the runway in use. This is what the weather is doing. These are the recent pilot reports on the weather. These are, you know, this taxiway is closed or whatever. Um, you know, this airspace is closed or open. You know, all that kind of stuff. There's right. a whole checklist of all the things we have to cover. And then, you know, once they're sure, they say, okay, I've got it. And then they start talking. And I stay there for another couple of minutes listening and watching to make sure they have it and that I didn't forget to tell them about anything right. um, before I'm allowed to go. And uh, so, yeah, it should be seamless. That's the whole idea is that, you know, you just keep on keeping on. And yeah. the voice changed, but we're still playing. Yeah. Almost sounds like a relay race. Like yeah, you it have is. to, like, be sure you're handing the baton and don't drop it. <laughs> well, no, it absolutely is. And occasionally it doesn't work out. Um, we made the national news many years ago when a controller came up and took over from another controller. And... Basically, the first thing he did was put an airplane on the runway right in front of somebody who was about to land. And that had been part of the briefing is that this airplane is on, and this is, we talked about landing on the inboard runway earlier. We had, this was a heavy jet that was going to land on 2-4 left. Right. And the airplane was about a mile and a half final when he tells Southwest, runway 2-4 left, da 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 clear for takeoff. And Southwest rolls out there, and the heavy jet goes around. And it was close enough that it made the national news mm. and um, that was that's the whole point is not to do that right and so that's and the, the two minute overlap rule came out of that and some situations like that probably where just because the other guy says I got it doesn't mean you immediately turn around and run away right you have to stick around for a couple of minutes and make sure that he's got it and make sure that Oh, I forgot to tell you, that guy's on 2-4 left. Right. Um, but these are all things that, you know, they, they taught you back in the 90s through those nine weeks, right? Just to, oh, to, well, some of it's you learn at the FAA Academy um, because they don't, most of what they teach in that first nine weeks was just, you know, do you have a job? Mm-hmm. Once you have a job, then you do what's called terminal, well, in my case, terminal for airport or en route for center, the guys who are doing in between. Uh, follow-on where okay now we're actually gonna you know you you've at least made it through the next cut so now we're going to teach you some of what you need to know the basic rules and then you get sent to whatever your first facility is and that's where the learning really starts because anytime you go to a new facility it's just like pilots stepping into a new airplane the training starts over because the rules don't change the airplane still can't hit that is yeah. you know rule number one the airplanes cannot hit right um but how you do that at LAX isn't necessarily the same as how they do it at Long Beach because the runways are different, the airspace is different, the terrain is different, all that stuff is different. And so you, how you do it here isn't exactly the same as how you do it there. And so anytime you go to a new airport, you go back into training on how to work that airport. Just like any time a pilot transitions to an air, aircraft, he goes back into training on how to fly the Airbus. Because, I mean, the basic rules of physics don't change, I mean, for a 7.3 versus an Airbus. But right. where are the switches? What are the speeds you need to know? What are the procedures for, you know, all that stuff? 
it's different from one to the other. And so you don't see pilots jumping out of a 737 and climbing into the Airbus for the next leg. Right. You don't see controllers working at LAX today, and then they go do Torrance tomorrow yeah. and come back to LAX <laughs> on Friday. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you work at an airport, and then you work at that airport. They fly a plane, and they fly that kind of plane. Um, you can transition, but you go into training each time. And I think most people would say your job is probably one of the most stressful jobs in the world. Would you agree with that, or would you um, say? Eh. Oh, it's that's that's one of the most common reactions I get. Yeah. So, oh, you're an air. Oh, that's such a stressful. I could never do that. Or isn't that such a? And we internalize the stress, but it's there. Yeah. Um, I mean, we don't think about the fact that that Philippine that just flew over has 300 some odd people in the back of that plane. Right. If I take care of the plane, the people will be fine. But I'm. You know, vaguely aware, yeah, there's 300 people on that plane. Right. And there's a level of, every time I say clear for takeoff mm-hmm. or clear to land, that's a, I'm accepting responsibility for what happens, you know, on that runway. Right. And that's not something taken lightly because it, that has gone wrong at this very airport. Right. And uh, that's, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds easy. Oh, yeah, just look out the window, tell the guy where to go. But, you know, um, and it, you can sit there. And watch, I mean, you can come up and, you know, you'll have somebody who's either in training or just visiting, and they plug in and they listen. It's like, oh, I could have done that. You tell that, okay, turn left, follow that guy, da-da-da-da-da. I, I could have done that. It looks so simple. But when it comes time to actually making the decision, okay, why is this one following that one? Right. Or why would that one go over there instead of over here? And you get into all the, you know, all the inside baseball rules of yeah. well, this one doesn't fit over there, right. or that one has an open gate and the other one doesn't, or any number of other things that that go into it. That you know, and a trainee a lot of times will ask, well, what would you do if da 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 da? And the answer is almost always, well, it depends, because how I did it today while you were watching, it's not the same thing I did yesterday or what I might do tomorrow, because there will be some other variable that changes the outcome and that's right. why we still have jobs because when chat gpt can take over the control tower oh boy. Um, <laughs> yeah, i don't know about that yeah i don't either but uh, hopefully i'll make it to retirement before that happens all right with all that going on i mean how how do you later tater how do you stay so calm up there at least i think you're 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 calm when we hear you on yeah. the live streams well, part of it is that my microphone isn't on all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh-oh. but yeah, uh oh. But no, um, in, uh, in, I mean, the truth of the matter is that a lot of it's basically training and experience. I mean, as I mentioned, I've been doing this for, you know, a little while now. And so that's part of the training. And I remember my very first instructor telling me that. You know, sometimes, you know, the controller has to be the same voice in the room because, you know, I technically work for a regulating authority. And a lot of it comes down to basically, you know, most of what I say is dictated by our, you know, our rule book. Yeah, there's a whole book of, you know, situations and how we're supposed to handle them and the separation required and this is the prescribed phaseology for this situation and this is how you say it this is what you say you know these are the words and through sheer repetition you 
you know, you know what to say, and part of your training is, okay, this is how the situation looks like it's going to play out. But if something doesn't work, what are you going to do? And this is, as an instructor, this is something I ask trainees all the time. Okay, what if that guy doesn't do what you just told him to do? Right. And that's part of what we have to do is you, you come up with the instruction, you give it to the pilot, and then you watch to see if they actually do what you told them to do. Because mm-hmm. they don't always. I mean, they mean to, but sometimes, you know, sometimes they go left and you really meant right. Right. And sometimes you said right when you meant to say left. Um, and that's all part of, okay, I have to come up with the instruction. I give them the instruction. The pilot reads back the instruction, which is my first check of, okay, did he get it? Then I watch to see, did he actually do what I asked him to do? And, you know, what am I going to do if he doesn't? You know, so you're going to have a plan B. And say, like, okay, well... If this doesn't work out, I can't get this guy out, then I'm going to do this other thing. And if that's not going to work either, then I've got, you know, a a plan C and probably at least some vague idea of what plan D might have to be. Um, Where that normally comes into play is when you've got an airplane on the runway and an airplane on final for the same runway. Um, You see this from time to time. And the idea normally is that one of them gets off of it before the other one gets there. That's the whole, you know, we're not supposed to have multiple airplanes on the runway at the same time. There are some exceptions, but basically, you can't land and take off on the same runway at the same time. That's bad form. And, you know, we were talking earlier about the monthlies and one of the runways is closed and construction and so forth. And what will happen is sometimes you put an airplane on the runway waiting for the arrival that just landed to get off the runway. And you're kind of expecting, okay, it's an A320. He's probably going to make this exit, or maybe that one. And if he misses this one, I'm going to try and tell him to hustle down to the next one. Um, if, you know, if I can, I'm going to tell him before he lands, you know, to try and make the midfield, you'll hear this, you know, if able, make the midfield exit or plan the midfield exit. Um, or we'll say, you know, something like that kind of lead the pilot this is where i kind of like for you to exit sometimes you tell them i don't want you to exit for you know reasons but you're just like okay he just missed that exit meanwhile i've already put the departure on the runway the next arrival is trucking down the final sometimes i can tell him to slow down sometimes i can tell him to make an s turn you know there's i mean there are various tools in your toolbox so to speak right and you know, you, sometimes one will work, sometimes another one will work. You can't do S turns when they're way low. They don't want to do that. Um, sometimes you can change them, assuming the other runway is open. Sometimes you can change them to you know, the other runway. You may hear this sometimes change the runway two four left, runway right. two four left, cleared land. He was originally going to go over the right. Right. So, you know, there are all kinds of options. And sometimes it comes down to go around, fly runway heading, comma, maintain 2000, mm-hmm. traffic. Right. And you tell them about whatever the airplane, other airplane's doing. But you've got to know, you know, what your options are. And you can't be so tied to one plan of action that you can't ditch it right. when it isn't going to work. And it's like, well, so much for that idea. Here we go with plan B. Or, well, plan B is looking, you know, that's not going to work because whatever. How's plan C? I don't know about that. Plan D, here we go. Yeah. Don't know what it was, but here we go. Um, but stay calm. 
while you're trying to figure it out, right? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the part about having your microphone turned off. <laughs> but a lot, it, it's, it really is loads yeah. and loads of experience. Yeah. And some of us are better at it than others. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it's an act um, because that's part of the, I mean, I did have one supervisor tell me once, you know, fake it till you make it. Mm. Um, wise words. <laughs> wise words up to a point. Yeah. But, you know, air traffic control, that only works so far. At yeah. some point, you have to make it. Right. Um, yes. And, uh, uh, but the whole time, I have to be able to project a voice of, shall we say, calm authority, because the tone of my voice is the only clue the pilot has as to what's going on. I mean, he can see most airliners now have a traffic display where he can see what the other airplanes in the air around him are. But he doesn't necessarily know what they're all doing, and he may or may not be able to see the one on the ground, and so forth. But, um, and so, you know, if the controller loses it, what's the pilot supposed to do? Um, it's very much incumbent upon us to, you know, maintain control of not only the situation, but ourselves. Um, and you know, sometimes that doesn't work out. I mean, there's not everybody who starts down this road gets to finish, yeah. and that's one of the, you know, one of the ways that occasionally people are invited to to look into a different career field. <laughs> you definitely have a very calm demeanor, personality, but we all know that there are controllers out there that have kind of become popular in social media you know kennedy steve and notorious i think is the yeah. word you're looking for <laughs> yeah. yes boston um, john we're curious to know if you know any of those with the bigger personalities um, this is you know this is thin ice for me because we've had people like that here at lax um most of them have moved on but uh this is not a thing where i want to really stick my neck out by speaking ill of other folks um, that said, that's a thing that, um, if it starts becoming a problem, your supervisor is going to call you downstairs. It's like, you know, we need to have a talk. And one of the things we do as controllers is something called tape talks, where just because you're not in training anymore, doesn't mean you don't have to listen to tapes of yourself. And so there will be times where you and the supervisor or a training specialist sit down and listen to a tape of you working traffic mm. and there will be a critique of okay you're using you know that's sloppy phraseology or incorrect phraseology or you should have said this and you you know you said that when that's not the correct phraseology or you know you dropped the call sign here uh, stuff like that mm. and so there's a you know and sometimes it's more like okay you need to go listen to yourself um, and, you know, get back to me with, you know, what we're going to do about this. So, I mean, it's, it's not like you have, you know, free reign to just, you know, do whatever you want on the, on the frequency. Right. Now I'm curious to know if you ever go back and watch our streams and listen to yourself. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I will admit to having done that no. the, uh, um, once or twice, mainly because that's the easiest way. It's like to replay a situation yeah. at home. Uh -huh. um, at work, we, of course, can replay. You know, we have radar replay. Right. Um, we have the, the uh, voice radio replay where we can, you know, and not just us. I mean, somebody at headquarters can 
you know, can dial up and say, well, let's see what's going on at LAX today and sit there and listen in and watch the radar and say, yeah, what's going on over there? And occasionally you'll hear back that's like, well, you know, there was, this, there was an inspector who listened to you on ground one the other day and, you know, you need to stop doing this or oh. you did a good job doing that. Um, so, but the easiest way at home is, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, I was working that day. That's how Tater Todd yeah. found out that he's Tater Todd. Well, uh. now, let's, let's hold, hold the phone here because I'm sure some people are listening to this and they're like, well, well now, no. hold on a second here. Why is Wait it called Later Tater? Well, I mean, it kind of wraps yeah. up to what we're talking about does, now. Actually. On one um, live stream, I heard you. I didn't even know who you were. You just said Later, later Tater to yeah. someone. To someone. I don't remember who it was. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, you know, some airplane, some random airplane, you know, American 266 contact SoCal departure later, Tater. Right. And just being totally just kind of flip. Um, <laughs> and uh, apparently somebody was listening. Um, yeah. Thus, yes. here we are. <laughs> and uh, um, so, okay. uh, yeah, so later, Tater, you you also, uh, it's, y- uh, 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 see y'all? Oh, absolutely, y'all. Y- y- yeah, y'all? Yeah. So... I don't know how to do it in. Uh, yeah, Aer Lingus yeah, just. Lingus yeah, Aer Lingus, and I. I, I, was I don't say, speak guess Welsh, that plane. <laughs> but but uh, um, yeah, it's just it's a way to um, I would say add levity, um, individualism. Yeah. It's definitely something that I have to be careful about because there's a time and there's a time not. Right. Um, and I mean, if you listen long enough, you'll—I mean—you'll hear situations where all of a sudden, okay, we're not screwing around. Right. Um, I mean, none of it can be screwing around. Right. But uh, there'll be times it's okay. That needs to stop right now because I've got serious business to attend to. Right. Um, you know, you'll never hear me say, you know, how do y'all, but Air Force One. Right. Um, just you, know, you just don't. Um, but. But I think there's a calming effect to the pilots. There is a calming effect. Well, working. because, I mean, my grandmother said way back in the way, you catch more bees with honey than vinegar. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, you know, and so that's that's part of the, you know, because I've been the other guy on the radio. And you get better results right. um, if, you know, if you're kind of upbeat, right. if you're not being you know, mean or, you know, disrespectful to the pilots, which we're not supposed to be, but... Or condescending. I've heard condes- a little bit of that. Conde- yeah, <laughs> condescending. That's a very good description of it. Um, but, but it's... Particularly when you do this day in, day out, and it's like you get tired of the same mistakes over and over again. It's like, man, I wish he'd just listen. But And so it's very easy to become that person. And I have been that person... And it works better if you're not that person. Yeah. Um, you just... And that's, that's not I, what I said. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've and, heard and a little bit of that. Yeah, you, yeah. you probably have heard some of that. Yeah. And, and uh, sometimes when I got here, you know, way back in the day, 2002, 2003, and was training, at that time, the attitude was somewhat different than it is now as far as what's acceptable. Um for how the controller addresses the pilots but one of the techniques that I remember being taught on ground control was that if you know you're having a bunch of you know difficult interactions with pilots 
you jump on one of them, and everybody else jumps in the line. Mm. Yeah. And because they're all listening, right? They're all listening, <laughs> or they're supposed to be. That's that's sometimes the issue is they aren't listening in the first place. Mm. But but that that tool gets dull really, really quick, and so. That's something you know. You want to use that very sparingly because it gets old for them too. And it's like, oh yeah, this guy. You know, I got that guy. And I, you just, and it's a lot easier at the end of the day um, if you haven't been, you know, unpleasant to basically everybody on the frequency. Um, it's just, I find it less nerve-wracking for myself and. It's, I mean, because sometimes I have to work next to somebody who's, you know, having one of those moments, and it's you kind of cringe. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, it's like I've been there, I, you know, but, you know, geez, I wish this was over. And, and a lot of that comes down to the experience, and that can sometimes be a tell for, like, a, a you know, supervisor running a shift that, you know, wait a moment, you know, so-and-so doesn't sound the way they normally do. Maybe I need to pay attention to what's happening over there because yeah. that's part of what the supervisor's job is, is to kind of ride, you know, ride herd on everything. And sometimes that means that your break comes up a little sooner than it was expected to because, you know, maybe you need a break now. Right. Um, and sometimes it just comes down to... And sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, somebody stands next to you and kind of helps. I mean, just pointing out, you know, this airplane, that airplane, this strip, or whatever. Um, not even to the point of taking over the position, just kind of being a, a second set of eyes and ears. And a lot of times, about half a dozen transmissions is all it takes to fix the situation. But you can get so buried in your own mess that you can't see the forest or the trees. And then, you know, somebody comes and gets you out. And they issue, you know, half a dozen control instructions. And it's all over. And it's like, what just happened here? And and that's where one of the things about being a controller is that there's a certain, I don't want to say arrogance, but there's a certain level of pride that, you know, you know what's going on and your poop don't stink. But you have to be able at a moment's notice to swallow that. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this ain't working. Yeah. And sometimes what it takes to fix the situation is more than what you, you know, are able to do. You need somebody else because it's not in your airspace or that airplane's already left your frequency. You've got to reach out and you know, say, hey, you know, departures. I need, can you turn that guy because this other guy's doing a thing? Or you yell across to the other tower controller, I need to turn you know, this airplane. Or can you hold off on your airplane for a moment because I may have to turn this airplane. Oh, you know, that kind of stuff. Sometimes it takes someone else um, to pitch in. And again, normally, you know, 30 seconds later, it's all done. Right. Again, my grandmother, if you mess up, fess up. And then yeah. fix it. Right. I mean, yeah. you've got to, you know, if you screw up, I mean, people screw up. We're human. We try not to make mistakes. We really do. But if you make a mistake, you need to know how to fix it. Right. And you better do that. That's also part of what we do. And if we do it right, 
no one ever knows. Yeah. So there seems like there's definitely a lot of personalities up there in the tower. You've got Later Tater, who's with us here today. Uh, another name we pop up, uh, Tater Tot, who the audience uh, described as, uh, I guess, a younger version of Later <laughs> a younger Tater. tater? I, I, yeah, Tater Jr. I don't even know if that's even true, but that's <laughs> well, what they came up with. It, it, we we used to work together a lot, actually. We are okay. we don't work together that much anymore. The schedules were on different crews, so we kind of pass in the hallway type thing most days. But, um, yeah, uh, Tater Tot, as he told me after seeing it on one of your videos uh-huh. with his kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, Tater Tot is another controller who's been at LAX for, oh, jeez. A decade and something oh, now, wow. honestly. Oh. I mean, he's been around. He came here, I think, from Burbank. He was at okay. Burbank before. Um, I could be mistaken. but it, And this is you know, Contact Departure. Yeah. 1.75. And, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but, yeah, he learned he's tater tot by, you know, your video popped up in his YouTube feed one day as wow. a suggestion. And he's at home, and he's like, oh, hey, I worked that day. So he, you know, watches the video, and and at the part where he comes on, and, you know, his kids are watching with him, and y'all say something, oh, this is the guy we call Tater Tot. (laughs) So now, his kids and his wife Uh (laughs) know and call him Tater Tot. Tater Tot. Oh, boy. That's uh, too funny. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, um, and, yeah, well, I mean, and at this point, we, you know, as you mentioned, we are not supposed to be personalities, and yeah. so um, I'm kind of pushing the limit on that. Sometimes um, I have, you know, occasionally had a supervisor kind of, hey, you need to back it off. Yeah. Um, and uh, but just the, you know, if you listen long enough, you're gonna you, you recognize voices after a while. Oh, right. Yes. yes. And, Absolutely. You know, different people say different stuff different ways, even though. The, prescri- the phraseology itself is fairly prescribed. Runway 24 left, clear for takeoff. That's how you're supposed to say that. And we all do. But, you know, you say it slightly different ways, different accents, right. you know, so forth. Right. And it's like, hey, I heard that guy yesterday. Um, and the, you know, it's, the pilots get it too, I think, sometimes, where the ones that fly through here regularly, yeah. um, and some are based here, um, kind of, you know, familiar voices. And I actually had... A tug driver lay a later tater on me oh. a few days ago oh. on ground oh, wow. control. And it's like, hey, wait a moment, that's my line. <laughs> wow. Uh oh. Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it seems, uh, you know, Buttercup, you know, you've, apparently you've never met. Ops I have 90. never met Buttercup. Um, and that was just something that was just totally off the top of my head. Um, and, um, we enjoy those interactions, though, when we listen and we say, yeah. hey, Buttercup. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and it's all in good fun yeah. um, while remaining professional. Right. Um, and again, there's times I say, okay, I, I can't play around right now because mm-hmm. there's too many other things going on. And too much of that will, I mean, it becomes a distraction mm-hmm. or it can be. It's not supposed to be. I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's a big emphasis on no distractions in the tower cab. So... I can't watch your stream in the tower cab because right. YouTube is blocked on FAA computers. Right. Um, because, you know, you really want your, you know, 
public servants using federal bandwidth. Can I, can I ask you, are we, are we on the TV in the break room? Um, probably. And, and of okay. course, you know, and, you know, people can watch on their, their iPads and cell phones right. and all that right. sort of thing. That's good to know because you know, sometimes we'll, we'll spot like a, oh, a mylar yeah. balloon yeah. and we'll say, hey, tower, but, yeah. but they're not watching. <laughs> well, and, you know, pilots will often report balloons but yeah. we are you know no youtube is not playing in the tower cab okay. we're not allowed to have cell phones in the tower cab i mean just not at all and that can be a disciplinary you know offense yeah. okay. uh because we're supposed to be looking out the window right that is what we're there for and i mean you see enough people playing with their phone on the freeway it's like yes. the phone will not steer the car right um so yeah i mean there's there's definitely a a, a focus towards staying focused on what you're doing and you talked about stress earlier. That's one of the things that can become stressful because you've got to stay focused, but sometimes you need to stay focused on more than one thing. And humans like to think that we can multitask. We don't actually multitask. Multitasking is jumping back and forth really, really fast. Yeah. Um, but equally stressful sometimes is staying focused when there's nothing to focus on. Right. When you've got one airplane or two airplanes, and it's very easy to get involved in a side conversation or, you know, whatever. And, you know, all of a sudden you look up and it's like, oh, dear. Yeah. Um, and we really try to avoid that. But the tedium of staying focused when there's not that much going on is one of the reasons that we do rotate people in and out. Because, you know, you want people fresh. And I've observed particularly when I'm training somebody, that about the first hour and 20 minutes, they're good. And then after that, things can start going downhill pretty quickly because they just start running out of steam. Hmm. And you know, part of the training process is building up your ability to keep going yeah. safely, even though you've been there for an hour and a half. But that's... But that's, you know, that's that can be dangerous if yes. you can't stay focused on what you're doing. And so, you know, we rotate people through to try and keep people fresh. And, you know, we'll call it a freshen up sometimes where, you know, I need you to freshen up so-and-so. Yeah. And on that note, I'm kind of yeah. curious to know how many screens you're looking at one yes. time. Oh boy. Um, the tower cab looks like a Best Buy. There are screens <laughs> basically everywhere. Um, and most of them are duplicates. Uh, we have a radar display that shows the airplanes in the air coming to and from the airport. We have another radar display that shows the airplanes moving around on the ground. We have another display that basically shows the assigned gate numbers that the airplane, and it looks similar to the ground radar display. And sometimes in a pinch, we can use it as a backup because it uses a different information source, but it, it tells you the gate numbers. It's not always right because, you know, gate numbers change sometimes last minute and the pilot knows. Sometimes the pilot doesn't know. Um, there are one, two, three, at least three different indicate uh, screens that show us, you know, weather. A lot of it's duplicate weather from different weather sensors. We have screens that show basically all the important information you need to know if it changes on a regular basis what is the current ATIS code which is the automated recording that the pilots listen to that gives them 
basically the current weather, you know, the visibility, the wind, the cloud cover, the runways in use, but it's also a place where we list, you know, what's closed today, what equipment is broken, or, you know, what airports are having some sort of flow program where we're running delays to Vegas or we're running delays to Phoenix or here or there right. because, you know, you need to know that so you don't get the guy out to the runway and say, like, oh, wait a moment, he can't go. Um, holy cow. There are probably some other things I've forgotten. That's most wow. of them. Wow. <laughs> sure. And, you know, like I said, there's a lot of duplicates, but at any one time, you may be scanning back and forth between the airborne display and the ground display because the airplane on the runway doesn't appear on the airborne display anymore. They drop off at a certain point. And so you've got to hop back and forth. Okay, there's one rolling out on the runway. Where's the next one on final? Do I have time for the first one to get off before the second one gets here? Do I, do I need to send the second one around? You know, is the guy departure, is the departure rolling? Or, you know, is he still sitting there? Um, is that guy clear at the runway yet? You know, we you know, tell somebody to cross and you know this airport isn't that big but it's still big enough that particularly at night it can be difficult to see if an airplane at the far end of the runway has finished crossing the runway and you don't want to you know have the next one land or depart if he's still sitting you know sticking his tail out on the runway all of that is stuff so you're jumping back and forth or the supervisor will announce hey you know ATIS Alpha is now current so you need to glance over and say, okay, what does Alpha say? Because, you know, Alpha is, we, we change it at least every hour, but something will have changed. The wind's different. The cloud cover is different. You know, a runway closure changed, whatever. And so you've got to look at that. You know, oh, there's new flow programs. When does that flow program end? And, you know, all that stuff. So there's a lot of that sort of stuff that you're kind of alternating back and forth to try and keep on top of. And at any one time, you know, what you need to see is on some other display. So, yeah. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot of displays. <laughs> Basically, you, you look at the tower cab and you see that ring of windows that go around you know, the control tower. Imagine basically a shelf right below those windows all the way around, and it's nothing but monitors hmm. all the way. I, I tried to count one time, and I lost track somewhere around 60. Oh my and there goodness. were more. I just couldn't remember. Did I count that one yet or not? Um, and so, you know, and then some certain positions have other stuff they're looking at. Flight plans, for instance. I don't have to look at flight plans, but the clearance delivery controller does. He's got two screens for that, plus the weather and, you know, the delays and that sort of thing. So, yeah, there's, there's you know, no end of, of displays to look at. Wow. I'm overwhelmed just hearing I, all about I, it. Yes, <laughs> I, 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 just, I don't even know what to, to talk about. I mean, yeah. what is your favorite out of all the positions up there? What is your favorite north tower, Ooh. south tower, ground south, ground north? It depends what day it is, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because there are times that any one of those positions is a cakewalk, and there are times that any one of those positions is a meat grinder. Yeah. Um, the south ground control is consistently the toughest as far as the most likely position for stuff to just get you know, crazy because there's, you know, the south ground control, what we call ground one, controls basically all the taxiways on the south side of the airport. And sometimes we can divide it where what we call ground three will actually take the some of the west end and some of the stuff on the south side of the airport 
Soviet ground one can look at primarily just the, the terminal complex. But part of what the ground controller has to do, you know, you've got taxis to the runway, taxi to the gate. How hard can that be? Well, one of the first things that you learn as a ground controller when you go into classroom for a ground controller, you know, earlier I talked about drawing a map. Ground controllers, the first thing they do in classroom is, okay, here's a blank map of the airport, label every gate, all hundred and some odd that we've got. Yeah, label every taxiway. And because the ground controller needs to know, how do I get to that gate? Right. And in the case of a lot of the, the t- core terminal gates, who controls that gate? Because we don't. You know, United Airlines controls a couple of the alleyways. Alaska has one. American's got a couple on the north side. Uh, Delta has a couple alleys. Uh, most of the Tibet and the midfield satellite is the, you know, the city ramp tower. And so... You know, an airplane calls me at gate 134, that's not my gate. Hmm. So, I, you know, and you've got to pay attention to where he is. If I tell him, you know, push back approved, I was like, whoa, that's not my, you know, I don't know what's there. It's not my, you know, it's, it's outside of my you know, area of jurisdiction. And, uh, but also, an airplane lands and he's going to gate 134. Well, how do I get him there? Right. And you've got to know all of that without thinking and so that's one of the challenges for a ground controller right off the bat is you know how do i get him there and also before i get him there is that gate even open right because if the gate's not open i don't want him anywhere near (laughs) the terminal complex i mean we don't have a lot of room to work there and somebody who can't get off the taxiway just becomes a real big thorn in your side and so you know it's a rock in the stream or whatever you want to call it and so normally it's like okay how can i get rid of this airplane and sometimes you can go park them somewhere yeah sometimes things are busy enough that you can't park anybody anywhere because the moment they park they're blocking that taxiway which means no one else can use it and so now we heard you one time say you're off to the beach. Your gate's not ready. You're off to the beach, which is okay. going to well, the far west side. Well, it's basically the west end of the airport. Right. Um, and, you know, there is a beach over there. We can't yeah. actually <laughs> see it because it's on the other side of the dunes. Right. But, you know. It's Some a, of the pilots it, know what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you look at the chart and say, okay, well, the land stops right over there. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a beach, a Dockweiler Beach. There's a state park there. Um, you can go camp there if you like. It's really, really noisy. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> The crazy part is, you look at that, and there used to be a neighborhood right there. Yeah. Back in the you know, 20s, 30s, 50s, 60s, I think it was called Surferage. But oh. there were houses on top of those dunes. Yeah. And if you take off out of here, particularly off the north side, and you look out, you can see the streets are still there. Yeah. All the houses are gone, but the, the, the streets are still there. And it's now, of course, a, a nature preserve for right. the blue butterfly and they have mm. since discovered i think two other endangered species oh, wow. that maybe weren't there to begin with but they're there now Interesting. Um, yeah. and so yeah that's but uh yeah you know the west end of the airport tends to be where you you're more likely to be able to put somebody and let them sit for a while right um if you're watching on the south side you'll hear the tower controller you know sit, tell somebody you know taxi be a hotel whole short of taxiway quebec or sometimes Bravo 17, which is as far west as you can go on that taxiway. And, you know, at that point, they're a mile and a half from the terminal. But, you know, if the pilot just told me, well, I, my gate's not going to open for 30 minutes, 
Bye. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously, a lot of yeah. construction is going to be had here at LAX in the coming years. You know, yes. additions of many new terminals. Is that going to cause even more stress for you guys? Or? I'm sure it will. Yeah. Um, we've seen preliminary sort of layouts of where the terminals are going to be. There's going to be this parking lot right yeah, here in front zero. of us, yeah. um, which is currently the Uber lot. And uh, yeah. that's going to become Concourse Zero, zero which yeah. is going to have wide body gates. That's wide body? Wide body gates, wow. I believe. Um, terminal 9 is going to be where the American Eagle terminal is now. You probably see that from the, the right. H Hotel, right. um, you know, where the American Eagle guys are now. That's going to become Terminal 9. Right. Um, I believe there's going to be wide body gates there also. Um, oh. And then American Eagle terminal is going to move down to next to where the American maintenance hangar is now, basically at the south end of the uh, MSC, is what they originally called the Midfield Satellite Concourse. It's now the West Gates at Tom Bradley, I think is the official name for that building. That's so what the Eagle's Nest was originally, wasn't it? A long time ago, yeah. when I got here way back in the day, yes, yeah. the Eagle's Nest was there. Right. At the time, that was taxiway sierra i believe that ran north south and taxiway quebec that ran north uh it was two parallel taxiways at the time we controlled it we have a control tower um controlled that then the uh airport you know they built the the new terminal or concourse and we also got new north south taxiways to the west side of that and so the airport took over the uh, midfield north-south taxiways mm-hmm. because all the gates on the west side of the Tom Bradley push onto that taxiway okay. and all the gates on the east side of the MSC push onto one of those taxiways. And so they control all the pushbacks on there. Um, if an airplane has to go down one of those taxiways from the north side to the south, they work it or we at least have to call them and get permission to run an airplane through their airspace if you will and uh we control the taxiways on the west side of the the msc uh november and papa currently um that's been one of the if you you talk about stressful things for me having been here so long a lot of these taxiways used to be called something else and every now and then i'll have a flashback moment it's like, oh, no, that's not Taxiway Quebec anymore. That's actually Taxiway something something. And, um, oh, wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> old dog, new tricks. Uh, so, you know, that, that is a thing. And that's going to happen again. You know, I think we mentioned earlier, Northside Construction, they're going to build new taxiways to exit 2-4 right or 6 left that uh, replace in some cases, the ones that have now, because right now there aren't that many exits on uh, the north complex, you know, 2-4 right, which is the land, the runway we land on, right. primarily on the north side. There are not many ways to get off that runway. And so we're going to get a couple more sort of high speedish. I don't know. I don't think they're going to be official high speeds, but they're not going to be 90-degree turns. Okay. Ah. Um, and they're also going to build a couple on the east end for a landing on six left because when we go east traffic and we have to land on six left there is no easy way to get off that runway when you're landing on six left there's you know if you miss the midfield exit at yankee which is pretty early for you know arriving airplanes 
you're stuck with two 90 degree turns and you know you've probably sat and watched you know a triple seven or a 747 making a 90 degree turn and it takes a long Ooh, time yes yeah. and because you know it's a big airplane yeah and you know meanwhile the next arrival keeps coming you know two miles a minute three miles a minute and you know as a result when we are east of traffic we cannot run as many airplanes in an hour as we can from a west traffic. The I was airport's just, just not built Yeah, I was to just going to ask you about that. I, okay. I, I think we could probably do a whole podcast on East Flow, reverse ops, as we yeah. tend to call it. Is that okay. just is that a nightmare for you guys? Just absolute, um, just like, oh, boy. Here we go. It, for some people, it is. Um, I have to admit, I kind of look forward to it because we don't do it very often. There right, are yeah. years <laughs> that um, we don't do it at all because it's totally weather dependent. We won't do it if we can get away with not doing it. Right. Um, right. The airport just is not built to go east traffic. It's going to get better. It's going to be a couple years from now, but it's going to get better. Right. Um, but you know, the the arrival rate at this airport goes down by about, if I remember right, fifteen or twenty yeah, percent if you, we have to go east traffic, right. and so. Delays at LAX will domino, you know, across the country. You know, picture, oh, wow. you know, picture a pond, and you throw a rock into it, and you just watch the ripples go out. Um, and so you'll end up with airplanes sitting on the ground in JFK because we're east traffic, and, and we and just that, can't land as many airplanes. But that's because of the taxiways. That's primarily because okay. of the taxiways. Okay. So it will get better. Okay. Um, and. You know, and it needs to, yeah. particularly since, you know, if you watched this winter, we were east traffic more than we've been in recent years by right. a good little bit. Right. And it appears that the global climate change situation means that's going to be happening more often in the future. So, hmm. yeah. Um, and, of course, we're trying to get ready for the Olympics. Los Angeles is hosting yeah. the Olympics again in a few more years. Right. And we expect to be really busy for that. Um, and, and so a lot of the construction you see now is strictly in preparation for that. I mean, that's the goal is to get it all done by the time the Olympics happen. And, you know, I hope we make it. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a lot going on. Oh, yes. Well, speaking of the future, what's the future for you here at LAX? I go to work tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> oh well <laughs> yeah tomorrow is monday in my world oh boy by the time you listen to it, it may not be but uh <laughs> um most of us at lax are currently working six days a week okay um we are on paper fully staffed we've got but some of those people are still in training and so you know we're having to you know to cover some while they get up to speed which is normal um but uh, in the meantime yeah we're we're working long days um, and uh, it looks like this is going to be a busy summer. Yeah. So, fortunately, I've already got my vacation time schedule. No. Oh, good. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but you were, you, you're, I mean, the, the retirement's in your, your future, Retirement correct? is in my probably not-too-distant future. Yeah. Um, because one of the other things about being a, an FAA controller is that we have mandatory retirement when you turn 56 years old, you get to work airplanes to the end of that month, and then you're done. Unless you get a waiver. And I am currently operating on a one-year waiver to continue. So I have until the end of January coming. And then we'll see. Um, it's possible they'll ask me to stay beyond that point, but it's not guaranteed. Uh, one of the little 
pieces of fine print when you're doing that mm. is that I am basically on probation for the entire time because I'm beyond my point of mandatory separation. And so, you know, if I start going downhill or screwing up or whatever, mm. they basically say, okay, you know, you're done. Bye. Thanks mm. for playing. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, that's, you know, well, it's something to kind of keep in mind is that, you know, it, it's, it's a shorter leash than it was before your birthday. Um, but well, yeah. when that day does come, what are you going to do next? Sounds oh. like you, you still want that stressful. The possibilities. Like, you know, the possibilities. Yeah, it's a puzzle. I got to <laughs> <right>? a puzzle. <laughs> um, well, that's a, I've got a neighbor who told me that before you can retire, you have to have seven hobbies. And I'm still short a few, so uh, I'll have to start working on that. But I've always assumed that there would be something else. Don't know what, but I, you know, going retiring at 56 or 57 or even 58 is like, well, that's given today's average life expectancy. That's you know, what am I going to do for the next 20 years potentially? Yeah, right. Well, I don't know. Um, well, are there you know, places that maybe you would like to visit that you haven't been to yet? Oh, so many places. <laughs> um, I've never been to Australia or New Zealand. Really? Would really like to go. thing is, it's so far away that you yes. don't go for a weekend. No. You go for, I mean, and even a week. I mean, you go and you're just trying to get, you spend the next couple of days just trying to figure out what time it is. And yes. then it's time to get on the plane and go back home. And then you spend several more days trying to figure out what time it is. Yes. So that's not something you do lightly. Yeah. Um there is the possibility of employment in Antarctica, which is hilarious considering how really? much I don't like snow. <laughs> but it would be something, I mean, it's one of those things that's like, man, that would be awesome to do and oh. awesome to see. Um, I've seen the northern lights, never seen the southern lights. So, I mean, there's probably easier ways, but... You know, yeah, that um, would be amazing. You know, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many, I mean, and there's so many places, to be honest... Here in Southern California, that I haven't been and so many things I haven't done because I have to go to work. Yeah. And, you know, that is, I'll admit, one of the downsides of being a controller is the work schedule. Um, and this is the same for commercial pilots. You're going to be working on the nights, you're going to be working on the weekends, you're going to be working on the holidays because that's when people travel. Right. And so, you know, I've got. 30 years in and yet I've worked nearly every Christmas and nearly every Thanksgiving and that's you know that's that is one of the you know one of the catches to, to doing this it's a great job but you know there's a, a level of responsibility there and part of that is that you know you've got to work the nights and holidays and weekends because that's when stuff happens I mean this airport airplanes are flying 365 days a year 24 hours a yeah. day um, more during the day than not, but if you're out here at two, three, four o'clock in the morning, there's still stuff happening. Not as much, but it's still happening enough that yes. we can't all go home. Um, right. So, as you get closer yeah. to retirement, do you ever, you know, look back on your career and think of maybe a memorable moment? Oh yeah, um, most of them. I won't say most of them, but you know, there's a fair number that you kind of would be happy not remembering. 
Um, but I've been very fortunate. I have never had to listen or watch somebody die in an airplane. Oh, um, I've had to listen to tapes of pilots whose day was ending very badly, but I've never been the one on the other end of the radio as it happened in real time. Um, and that's, that's always kind of been career goal number one, is to always be somewhere else when bad stuff is happening and never make the news. Yeah. So far, um, you know, I've... You know, I've worked airplanes. It did not end well, but it happened somewhere else, somewhere else, and not, you know, not in my, you know, on yeah. my frequency in my airspace. Yeah. Um, I have watched hap- things happen to airplanes, but everybody was able to get out. So, you know, it's... That's but, good. Yeah, it is good. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, I would never wish that on somebody because, and you know, I don't know if... You know, I'd be able to come back if I was ever there right. and, you know, was the one listening as, you know, something happened. But, uh, you know, that's part of the responsibility you take on is, you know, you're there. And right. sometimes, you know, you need to be that voice for the pilot. I mean, we talked about earlier about, you know, being able to, to project a calm, commanding presence. And that's part of it. I mean, there have been times where, you know, without going into details, but there have been times where I've had to talk a pilot down. Not here, not recently, but I've had to do that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I like to think that any other person, any other controller would have done the same. But still, there was a point that day when the outcome was in question. And thanks to, you know, my training and experience, you know, everybody went home that night. Yeah. And honestly, as a controller, if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, you don't even know I'm there. I mean, the pilots know I'm there, but as, you know, the flying public, you know, what right. I'm doing, you know, if I've done everything right, you don't even know I was there. Yeah. And that's that's kind of my goal um, is, you know, everybody gets to where they're going. And, you know, they go on because, you know, they're going somewhere for a reason, not just so that they can hear me talk. I mean, y'all accepted, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing to hear everything that goes into this job and everything that you do. It's um, very impressive. And well, thank, well, thank you for you. everything yes. that you do as an air traffic controller here at LAX. Absolutely. Well, it's it's a great job. It's great responsibility, but it is a, it is a great job. And thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Absolutely. This My is gosh. amazing. <laughs> wow. Well, you're going to make a lot of people happy. This has been the number one thing. When are you going to get Later Tater on the podcast? <laughs> when are you going to get Later Tater on the podcast? Well, here it is. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, when will you get him to shut up? <laughs> no, this has been like, am I dreaming right now? This is really happening. Well, and yeah. wow. Thank a- you so much. Anytime you want to come back, you're more than welcome to come. You'll be sorry. <laughs> no, this has been incredible. Thank you for your time. And thank you again for joining us today. Oh, it's been awesome. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, this has been so much fun. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in and listening. I have been Plane Jockey Kevin alongside Plane Jockey Rudy. Thanks again for having me. This is great. Of course, the man of the hour here today, Mr. Later Tater. Hey, thanks for having me, y'all. Thanks for listening, y'all. And remember, Later Tater. Oh, boy. See you all later, Taters. See you on the next Plane Jockey's podcast. (laughs) 
goodbye. Well, folks, we finally made it. That's good because the first officer and I have talked so much. I feel like I know him better than my brother. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Plain Jockeys podcast, a companion to Airline Videos Live. Goodbye. Find us on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Airline Videos, or visit airlinevideos.com. On behalf of the entire crew, thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you again on the next Plane Jockeys podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.